welcome, Joe. This is our last um, of our planned conversations over the art of communicating by Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, and I just want to say thank you yeah. for doing this with me. Uh, yeah. It's really been, like for me, it's been great. It wasn't the first time I'd seen the book, but yeah. even this last time when I was reading it, I realized I was reading it differently, like different things resonate because yeah. I'm at a different place, Sure. right? And, sure. and so I'm like, whoa, this is a really great thing we did this. Yeah. And uh, I, I am seriously thinking about making this the required book since I can get a free PDF of it, at least for my summer class this summer, right? and see what, what can be done in a kind of experimental way. I'm not really textbook reliant already. Sure. So this could be the reading. Right. And I, yeah. Yeah, and that could be a good choice because it's, as you know, it's a quick read. And I think that's one of the uh, drawbacks a lot of times to requiring reading in classes. Students just don't do it anymore. But this is fairly easy to get through. And the way that you, the way that you organized our schedule, I thought facilitated for me at least um, reading. Uh, of it, so I think students will, they'll like the text. I think so. They like the, I think they'll like the structure of it. Yeah, and he's talking, he's talking to their inside people. It right. doesn't have to be something they have to memorize or even be tested over. Sure. Um, but I might have some measure of accountability, maybe in terms of discussions. Discussions, journaling. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. So today, our last section, um, we're dealing with pages 129 to 136. And um, it's the, the section is actually called Creating Community in the World. And it just makes me feel like this is the book that we need to give to the whole college. But I don't want to be an evangelist. You know, I just... Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like the first, yeah. the first paragraph. I'll I'll read the first paragraph. We don't have to read them all, but as as you think, and, yeah. or as powerful as compassionate communication can be when we use it in our individual relationships, its power is magnified when we bring it to our communities. Both communication and community have the same Latin root communicare, meaning to impart, share, or make common. We need to go in the direction of reconciliation and understanding, not just with our friends and family, but in our neighborhoods and workplaces. We can create an inclusive, compassionate foundation as the basis from which we interact with everyone. Yeah. <clears throat> I love that last sentence because we're gonna be creating something anyway as we come back from the pandemic. Sure. Why not create something that's really positive and powerful for the community itself. Yeah, and to have tools for doing so as well. I think, you know, one of the, among the many positive things that probably came out of the last two years, um, one possible drawback um, is people have not been connecting with each other in face-to-face -face settings. That's and, not a possible drawback. Well, <laughs> it's <laughs> it, a given. It, it, it's a serious it's a drawback. Yeah, yeah. And, the amount of screen time that I think we all have had, whether it's through Zoom meetings or just simple text messaging, um, these skills associated with sitting eyeball to eyeball, um, perhaps have atrophied, and, and particularly with young people, Absolutely. where they didn't already have a base 
a, a broad base of experience of that kind of interaction with people. Absolutely. And, and so they are more likely to suffer more um, than, say, older adults who can... It's like riding a bicycle, right? That, that perhaps you can pick it up and do it again. So. Right. It, it, it really... Have I told you about my polished rock metaphor? Again? No. No. I give polished rocks, and I have rocks over there for yeah. my students. Because my grandfather was a lapidurist, and he yeah. tumbled all these rocks that I inherited. Yeah. And uh, long ago, I decided that society was kind of like a rock tumbler, yeah. right? Yeah. And people get tumbled by society through interaction, through communication, sure. right? And the more interactions you have, the more polished you become at your, oh. your process of being a communicator. Yeah. This is why people in rural areas, and this is what I explain in class, this is why people in rural areas often seem a little rougher than people from the city. Yeah. They haven't had as much tumble. Yeah. Like even the wealthier ones haven't had as much tumble, but yeah. more exposure to diverse experiences. Yeah. As well. Yeah. 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 Most significantly, the people who are poor have even fewer experiences than that. And so we all come out a little bit mm -hmm. rough, you know? That's a pretty powerful metaphor. So I had, wow. yeah, I show people <clears throat> what the rock looks like before it's polished. I'm like, how do you even know? Yeah. Right? If yeah. it's going to turn out like this. Yeah. And then I give them all a polished drug because they're all... That's so cool. <laughs> stones in progress. <laughs> stones in progress. Hopefully not Wait, stones stone, in progress. Well, not, not stoners sure in progress. You know, yeah. I, nah, yeah, yeah. Rock on. <laughs> Rocks in progress. <laughs> yeah. I better yeah. keep it at the hard level there. Uh, That's oh. funny. Yeah. Yeah. I liked... Um, you know, this entire chapter and the fact that a lot of what we've been talking about is the microcosm of what we can bring to the larger world mm -hmm. and what we need to bring to the larger mm -hmm. world. I agree. And so I think um, it makes all the sense that he is ending this book um, in this way. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what ways in which we can communicate compassionately and mindfully to the larger society in which we live and then that as we'll talk later and i really loved the actual practice that he yeah on, yeah how it reverberates um through the world through our families through generations but i i'm jumping ahead so, yeah 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 do you want to hit that second paragraph there because the first sentence is I think very clear in what we're talking about. Yeah, and I did. I highlighted this, and it says a community that is committed to mindful speech and deep listening can be very effective in making society better. These two practices could be part of a global ethic that would be available to people of any culture or religious tradition to reduce conflict and restore communication. You know, what I was reminded of years ago, I read um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu's um, account of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa uh, upon the end of apartheid, and just how that particular structure was set up to bring healing to the South African community where the stories were being told um, and those who were the per perpetrators were just simply asked to listen deeply to the stories and the sharing. And um, 
you know, the title of that book, it, it's, it's just a really compelling title um, and that it's, it's entitled, um, uh, now I'm going to forget <laughs> that there's no future without forgiveness, some, something along mm, those, those mm-hmm. lines, and then about the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission. Um, and I think that this paragraph, to me, um, harkens back to that particular approach of community healing, national healing, international healing, and what it takes in order to to bring that about Mm -hmm. and the kind of commitment that it would require of people uh, to come together and to do, as he says, practice deep listening and mindful speech. Yeah. No future without forgiveness. No future without. Yeah, no future without forgiveness. That was the... Yeah. That was a really hard time in South Africa. Oh, yeah. To be called upon to forgive, to be called upon to recognize. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm excited about the idea of creating community because if you look on page 130, like the title of that whole section, Community Creates Change. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, I don't know that we need to read the whole paragraph, but like within that first paragraph there, it says systemic change can't be achieved without the energy of community. Yeah. Right? Well, actually. I I did that. Yeah. 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 Um, If you want to, well, let me, I'll just go ahead and read it. What the hell? (laughs) Um, So I'll be saying that, that sentence again. We can speak of our practice in terms of energy because mindfulness is a kind of energy. When we bring our energies together, they're increased a thousandfold. Mm. The whole can be much, much greater than the sum of its parts. Systematic change can't be achieved without the energy of community. If you want to save the planet, if you want to transform society, you need a strong community. Technology is not enough. Without mindfulness, technology can be more destructive than constructive. When we speak about creating a sustainable environment or a more just society, we usually speak of physical action or technological advances as the means to achieve these goals. And I have this last sentence underlined. Mm -hmm. But we forget about the element of a connected community. Without that, we can't do anything at all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's just... (sighs) Like, if we want to bring students back, we actually... I feel have to offer them a community to come to. Yes. You know, and and then with that community they can grow. Yeah. I've just seen it in my students. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, I told you a story yesterday about a student that I had thought had absorbed my notes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I talked to him. Mm-hmm. And he told me they were just sitting on the desk when he sat there. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's a possibility. Sure. Right. So, he I, I have to just like step back from thinking because he didn't take yeah. them. That he just didn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, and I think that's a part of what anyone needs to learn in living in community is to own up to your actions mm-hmm. and the impact of those actions on you know, on the community itself, other yeah. people. Yeah. Um, and you can't do that unless you're in community right. With people, right right 
in community, in conversation, and not avoiding. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. So. Mm. Yeah, I think he'll get there eventually, right? I think so too. I do. So when you say um, it, to move forward, uh, particularly within education, um, we need to have a place for students to come to where they experience community. I'm assuming you see that as more than just the classroom. I see that as the campus. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I see it online. Honestly, Joe, you can go to meetings online and you can get your task-related communication done. Right. But the fun part of meetings is walking out afterwards sure. and talking to people on the way back to the office. Yeah. And there was once upon a time where people actually went to have a drink after meetings. Right. It, 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 it was like when I first got here, and of course I didn't do it because I didn't drink. I didn't appreciate that that was community. Yeah, yeah. Like a lot of the things that have disappeared, I didn't appreciate them for what they did, so I didn't participate in them. And I think were they to reappear, I'd be like, now wait a minute. I'm, right. I recognize that and I want to do it this time. Yeah. yeah. So. So how, how would you envision that happening on a campus that at least historically has been known as a commuter campus where students just come and take a class and then they leave? I'm hoping for that extra 45 minute gap at noon, Joe. Okay, the arty hour yeah. as it's been proposed. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping for SEC. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that and then just ongoing, opportunities for ongoing spontaneous interaction right that's kind of what the hacky sack is yeah. it's ongoing like you can know whatever time you can predict that you'll see harper out there playing and and they do eventually become comfortable with it and sure. i yeah i've played with probably at least once 60 to 70 percent of all the students in my class they sample it okay yeah so um yeah it's another way to get to know people, and then when we're talk, when we're playing, they'll talk to me, and it it brings out a different kind of thing. Right, absolutely. <clears throat> you know, another thing in terms of gathering spaces, and I think it's been one of the challenges of our campus is we have wonderful dining facilities, but they're on either end of the campus, mm -hmm. right? So we have a cafeteria over on the west side, and then culinary what if we just had like a little snack thing well and that, that that's right it here. right that's yeah. it is the, the in my time on this campus we also had a snack bar you may recall it was this dilapidated building yeah. that was over on the east side of campus so we've never really had a center gathering here. spot for students yeah. and we all know that food is a magnet for people right and it, and it might be as simple as a coffee cart that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Just roll the cart around yeah. and you get, uh, every building gets it at a different outing from the class. Sure. And a couple of students get really lucky because it's every <laughs> class they go to. <laughs> right, exactly. So I think that that certainly is one of the easiest ways to build community on a campus is to feed them. Mm -hmm. you know, give them opportunity to, to hang out and hang socialize. Out. Right. Because right. then they say hello to each other. Like my students have made friends with each other because they're in class together. Sure. And that's not happening necessarily in class. Like in interpersonal, there is more opportunity. But you know, you come to class, you pay attention. When you walk out, you start the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
So I think it's your turn to talk about whatever you want to talk about in that little section. Yeah, this whole section of community creates change. And so, you know, he's building through um, the importance of going beyond just the individual relationship to the larger uh, collective. And a few things that I had underlined um, was toward the bottom of page 130, uh, when he says, when we sit and concentrate as a community, we create a collective energy that has a compassion and awakened understanding in it. Sitting together in silence can be a practice of listening to our own suffering and the suffering of the world. And, you know, that to me is very difficult when you're in the company of others, is just simply to be comfortable within the silence that's there, to be reflective, contemplative, and uh, to not feel as though there's a need to speak. Um, That's our culture. It is our culture. I mean, we tend to place primary emphasis on talk and speech um, and the idea of sitting in silence as a starting point Mm -hmm. for dialogue. People just aren't comfortable with that at all. Native you know? Americans tend to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. their primary mode. It, yeah. There was um, Keith Basso. He wrote a book called Portraits of the White Men because he hung out among the, the mm. Native Americans, and I think it was the Apache, um, and learned their language so long and so well that he became just kind of like a fly on the wall and whatnot. Oh, and wow. so yeah. he, he, he learned about their communication. Uh, but one of the things he learned is that when the kids were sent away to school and then they came back, you know, after an absence of months or sometimes years, the parents didn't all of a sudden start talking to them and asking them questions about how they were and what they did. Like the kids were often met with silence, right? And the rationale behind that was so the parents could get to know the kid yeah. without the communication rupturing or getting in the way and yeah. all the questions and whatnot. Creating all that noise. Yeah. yeah. So silence is a means of getting to know someone and create community. It's, it's not a new concept. It's just one that we haven't been given culturally. Like we do the let's break the ice, you know, yeah. like start talking immediately and, and build rapport. get very uncomfortable with silence yeah. because we interpret that as being divisive. It's almost the opposite interpretation. Mm-hmm. So this is a challenge to like reinterpret what being quiet means when you're with other people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, and actually that next paragraph, the collective energy of mindfulness also supports our individual practice. When we see other people who are in good communication with themselves and others, they inspire us. I just like that sentence right there. Mm -hmm. Because I want to be one of those people that inspires. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'll finish the the paragraph. Sometimes the cause of our sorrow is is hidden by so many layers of suffering that we can't penetrate it by ourselves, even when we practice diligently and sit mindfully. In these cases, the energy of a community of mindfulness can help us embrace and release suffering that we could not reach by ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
If we open our hearts, the collective energy of the community can penetrate the suffering inside us. Mindful listening and speaking will make it easier for us to build a stronger community. Yeah. Yeah, and he, in the next, in the following section, um, really addresses the prerequisite to even making that happen and, and the idea of trust um, and the importance of having that basis of trust um, as a way of sharing, sharing the suffering. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that that's always one of the, if not explicit, certainly implicit rules of um, whether it's a support group or a therapeutic group, a 12-step group, you know, what what's said here stays here, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so having that sense of confidence and trust that you're not going to go out and speak ill of what I've shared here or you're not going to reject what I've shared here, uh, but you're going to mindfully listen. And all the things that we've been talking about in previous, mm -hmm. um, you know, to, to simply, you know, that I hear your suffering um, without trying to explain it away or excuse it away or reject it in any way. Mm -hmm. Those things build trust within a community. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is an important part, <clears throat> the building trust and sharing suffering, because he talks about the, the, um, the hungry, hungry ghost. The hungry ghost, yeah. That was yeah. an interesting image. Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and just kind of start us on the section. He says, some of us do not easily trust another person. For such a person, it can be difficult to imagine sharing with a larger community. We may be a little bit wary or even very suspicious. People say they love us and understand us, but we haven't really experienced that love and understanding. We should be able to find ways to help a person who doesn't have the capacity to receive love and understanding. Sometimes there is real love, there is real understanding, but the person doesn't believe in love and understanding, and that's why he has never been able to receive it. That person is like a hungry ghost. In Buddhism, a hungry ghost is someone who has a big, empty stomach and is very hungry, but has a very tiny throat. Even if there's plenty of food, the person can't swallow it. He can't absorb anything. So even if a lot of understanding and love is offered, that person isn't able to take it in. Mm. I kind of identify with that. I think that's why I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that hungry ghost, uh, it, it, it's a pretty compelling image. Yeah. Uh, from the standpoint of a person that is just simply impervious to any kind of expressions of acceptance or love that they themselves may desperately be wanting, but they just can't open themselves up to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I talked with a hungry ghost the other day, actually. Well, and he even goes on to say in the next section, from time to time we see hungry ghosts like that walking around and we can recognize them. They look very alone and cut off. You know, and, and imagine again, you know, going back to our students and who they are and 
how many hungry ghosts do we have oh sitting my in heavens i have at least three per classroom if i right? think about hungry yeah. ghosts right oh. exactly and as much as we try to um you know reach out to them and in some cases they may have years of experience of educators that just aren't you know on their side mm -hmm. and so there's there's these walls that are up that are going to be very difficult for those of us who may be wanting to help and support but they don't see us that way it's a perceptual issue mm -hmm. but uh, his advice is right on target yeah he says yeah. I, i'm picking up in that same paragraph sure. we have to be very patient and allow them a lot of time and space right don't be too eager to help because when you're too eager to help you may have the opposite effect from what you intend yeah. you might get the opposite response he says, remain fresh, loving, compassionate, and spacious for them. That is what you can do now. <clears throat> I yeah. think I was, you know, yeah. a year ago being my hungry ghost. And there were people who were constant and helpful in their, in their reception. And it is a very helpful thing to know that when you encounter that person, sure. that you're going to receive that food. Yeah. You know, whether or not you could absorb it all, ah, but it's always there. <laughs> right. Right. And so that helps right. you. And then that person becomes the the example from the community that he's talking about earlier. Sure. That when somebody has their shit together, you look at them and go, Oh, well maybe I could find my shit and get it together too. Yeah. I apologize yeah. if I've offended anyone by using the word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they represent that steady presence in your life and, and uh it's um, it's comforting to know, or it can be potentially comf comforting to know that they're they're there they're in your corner, mm -hmm. you know, um, even though you may not be ready to accept it totally, but at, hopefully at some level of consciousness you recognize this is a person that I can turn to, right, if needed, and, and with patience and time, one yeah. day their throats will be larger. Yeah. And they begin to notice the energy of love and understanding yeah. uh, in them. In you. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I just like that section. I like the metaphor of the hungry ghost. Right. You know, and just that you can get a visual on the throat being so, and the need being so, and also I feel hungry right now. <laughs> but well, it's not for it's, needs or anything. It's early. Trying this new diet. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> This next section that he moves towards where he talks about um, altruism mm -hmm. and <clears throat> the fact that you know members of a community um, need to be ready to sacrifice and die for the sake of the community. Um, as much as my head agrees with this, uh, a big part of me thinks, is that still found within society, right? Where you have people that are willing to make the sacrifice that they need to for for the team, so to speak. Yes, because yeah. that's what's going on in Ukraine right now. When push comes to shove, people will dig in and say, yeah, I'll sacrifice myself for the, yeah. the principle. So yeah. I think it does still exist. Yeah. But I think in this case, it's like, like if we apply it to school I used to fall into and maybe sometimes I still do doing what I have to do and not any more than what's yeah. expected yeah so 
sacrificing would be doing more than what's expected, like yeah. staying on campus after I'm done teaching. And, and instead of like, I locked myself on campus this semester. Sure. And I have no choice but to go do something or grade. Yeah. <laughs> so I go do something. In between your two classes. In between my two classes. Right, right. But, um, you know, I could always stay after my second class. Uh, I could have two back-to-back -back and stay. And yeah. that would require more sacrifice than wandering around between the two classes. Sure. Because... It's above and beyond, but I think, yeah. I think that's the kind of sacrifice we can promote. There's a little <laughs> bit more time here, you yeah. know. Yeah. There's a joy to a student encountering a professor and having a conversation that makes them think differently, and they never planned to have that conversation, you know, when they set out, but they had this question, you know, and they found this answer, this person that helped them with this answer. Yeah. Well, and I know you to have sacrificed on behalf of students, you know, whether it, you had mentioned to me, I don't know, I've never heard the end of the story about the possibility of having to drive way up north to go pick up a student who was having difficulty mm. with transportation. In the end, I didn't have to go, so yeah. I was willing. Yeah, you made that <laughs> offer to the student, That's true. as I recall, right? And just the mindfulness of offering that way is a sacrifice because you don't know if she's going to accept or not, but mm. you have to be willing to sacrifice in the event that she does accept that ride. Now all of a sudden you have to leave earlier yeah. <laughs> to get to work Terrible and drive past for. the campus <laughs> yeah. in order to drive further north to pick her up, yeah. right? Um, or you would have had to have done that. And, and I believe you've opened up your home for students who, you know, in the past have needed places. So, um, that's important, right? And, and so I guess that's what the cynic in me is thinking. There's not a lot of Annalisa's in my world, at least, um, of people who are Yeah, willing. but when you got one, she's big. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean in terms of people who are willing to do this. He talks about here, um, sacrifice for the greater good. You know, to sacrifice one's discomfort or one's... Um, you know, material goods, that sort of thing, um, in order that the greater good may benefit. Yeah. I don't think I'm so unusual. Yeah. I think, I think people... Maybe I will... need a different circle of friends. <laughs> <laughs> Which one of us is the church goer? <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> I think people rise well, to the occasions that are given to yeah, them. Yeah. You know, if you don't give them an occasion to rise to... and. And everybody has a different life, you know? Sure. And you have to negotiate. Like, other people have to negotiate their priorities. And I don't. I'm just like, are we good on this? I talk to myself. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, let's go. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, a whole lot easier to make some decisions. And yeah. it's a whole lot easier to make poor decisions. But that's another story. Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. This was this was a, a it's a great section about the importance of um, being willing to kind of lay down your life um, for the greater good. At the bottom of page one thirty three, I underlined the the altruistic behavior on the parts of some members of your community nourishes your own generosity and altruism. Yeah, like um, I kind of hope that seeing Harper walking around the campus at least promoted conversations between other people or
promoted people wanting to go out and see what's going on in this building. Maybe not at the big old walk around, but sure. yeah. yeah, I don't know. I think seeing people walking around campus makes people remember that we can walk around campus. <laughs> right. right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, on page 134, that's the first full paragraph says, according to scientists who've conducted studies, when you're exposed to altruistic behavior from some members of your community, the seed of altruism in you is watered. And when your turn comes, you will do the same. You will know how to sacrifice for the sake of community. Yeah. I got a card from Sandy Desjardins a couple of weeks ago that I haven't figured out how to respond to. Mm -hmm. She returned a little inkwell that I had given her one day. Mm. And to me, in that moment, the inkwell meant nothing. It came in some stuff yeah. when I was 15. I found a flower, I put it in there, I gave it to her. She loved it, she treasured it, she put a paper flower in it. Oh, and then after she retired, she sent that to me mm -hmm. with a card that said something to the effect of, you know, I've been past the dream, and if the dream fails, it's due to a failure of imagination, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. it's like, here you go, <laughs> take care of it. I'm like, ah. Oh. Mm -hmm. Right, because I mean, she did a lot for community here at Absolutely. Scottsdale, and uh, yeah. we got some pretty big feet to to walk in. Yeah, yeah. we do, and that's um, I think one of the great challenges is people such as her who had, you know, such a big heart, um, and the kind of work that she did. And I also think of Carmen. Oh, I remember well. her every and, day. Right, exactly. And just, you know, the generosity, Linda Hicks, uh -huh. you know, the generosity of, uh, it's funny, they, these are women that I'm mentioning. I can't, <laughs> is there something Roger about Roger Slater them? was here and he yeah, Roger, for Roger us, and he came back. Right, right, yeah. exactly. He gave up his retirement. Right, <laughs> yeah. And so these people with just... Um, big hearts, big generosity, and a real eye towards bringing people together, right? And, and I think that, um, again, and I guess this is my cynicism speaking, and, and maybe it's my personality that's speaking, you know, that, that we're seeing increasingly people who are so self-interested and so self-focused that they have literally blinders on. You know, they're just kind of hell-bent on getting to their destination, their goal, whatever it might be. And this notion of building community and connection and just slowing down and um, connecting with other people around you, I, I think it's being lost. So and and that's, even, that's even pre-pandemic, too. I mean, the pandemic has been a catalyst to this isolation, right? Mm -hmm by its very nature, but even before, it, it just, yeah. I mean, when I think about those folks and the kind of experiences that they invited us into, I don't see that as quite as much. We got more hungry ghosts today because nobody's been feeding them. Yeah, perhaps. We can't feed each other if we're all hungry ghosts. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, uh, page 134, the second paragraph, uh, he wrote this before the pandemic. Uh, 
He says, living in the world, we have strong habits. We walk without any awareness or enjoyment of our steps. We walk as if we have to run. We speak, but we don't know what we're saying. We create a lot of suffering while speaking. Communities that commit themselves to mindfulness can help members of the community learn how to speak, breathe, and walk mindfully. The community helps train you and you train yourself. Yeah, there you go. That's it, right? That's it. Just sort of, you know, moving um, mindlessly along a path without much attention to who's along that path. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So. You take that next paragraph because I think it's important. Yeah, he goes on to say that when we practice in a commun- community, there are more people to support us, but we all, but also more opportunities for frustration and anger. Mm-hmm. So there's some messiness, right? Loving speech and deep listening are um, key to community building. You learn to speak in a way that will not cause suffering in yourself and your community. If your community doesn't practice this, it's not an authentic community. Even if you have suffering and anger, you can train yourself to speak in a way that helps the other person or group understand what is going on in you, and that makes real community possible, right? Um, real communication possible. Well, yeah. and uh, yeah, real. I'm sorry, real communication possible. I need to have my readers on. Uh, <laughs> Aren't they sitting right there? They are. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to take this moment to pause. Okay. Bleep. And now we have those readers on. <laughs> And we're back. The words. (laughs) Go ahead and. Yeah, so, you know, this section, and I especially like the line at the bottom of page 134 that I just read, where he says that if your community doesn't practice these things of loving speech and deep listening, it's not an authentic community. And and I think that there are a lot of times when people will use the term. you know, we're a family. It's like being a family here, or it's like um, being, you know, a cohesive group, or we're a team, right? Or we're a strong team. But are we really, right? And and I think if if you're not able to speak from a base of truthfulness and honesty, and have that listened to, and to then enter into a dialogue with each other then yeah, we may be a group that's loosely affiliated, but we're not really an authentic community, mm-hmm. right? And, and so what he's laying out here is, um, I think, a pretty tough litmus test of what is, what is the group that you're with, who are they, and, and how are you together, right? Is there truth-telling, is there deep listening, is our mindful speech, right? That's tough. Well, but I think he's on the right track. Like he says on page 135, our world can be a mindful, compassionate, our world can be a mindful, compassionate community. 
Um, he says we need to find better ways to communicate. If we can do this in our relationships, we can do it in our work environments and even in our political environments, yeah. which is some of the stuff he says. I'm like, if only we could bring it into that as well. Yeah. We have to transform our governments into mindful, compassionate places of deep listening and loving speech. We can each do our part to contribute as a citizen, as a member of the human family. In the process of community building, we get the transformation and healing we need to further the transformation and healing of the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but you, you just look at, and this goes back to previous discussions we've had, you just look at the primary means by which even political discourse takes place today is through social media. Mm -hmm. And, and that, is, that is not a medium that's conducive for loving speech and deep listening by any means. You know, mm -hmm. it's get your opinion out in 140 characters or less. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm not sure exactly how you bring this into the public sphere today given our heavy reliance on social media as a primary vehicle for um, public dialogue. People are still hungry for connection. So if we find the right, we essentially need some activity, then people can show up for it. Sure. Right? And then we could use social media to promote that and promote the messages associated. Yeah. Let's change the world, Joe. Uh, yeah, why don't we start a great starts, big activity? Right? Well, it is a process of training and learning. As he says on page 135, can I read that paragraph? Sure. It's a yeah. fun one. Yeah. When you speak, allow the insight of our collective humanity to speak through you. When you walk, don't walk for yourself alone. Walk for your ancestors and your community. When you breathe, allow the larger world to breathe for you. When you're angry, allow your anger to be released and to be embraced by the larger community. If you know how to do this for one day, you are already transformed. Be your community and let your community be you. This is true practice. Be like the river when it arrives at the ocean. Be like the bees and the birds that fly together. See yourself in the community and see the community in you. This is the process of transforming your way of seeing and it will transform how and how effectively you communicate. Yeah. I'm like, I just love that paragraph. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's outstanding. Mm -hmm. it's, it's about a radical shift in mindset without question. And so now we're moving into the final section, which is um, our communication is our continuation. Yeah. Where he kind of talks about essentially what we're doing as we're here becomes our legacy yeah. when we're gone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and this whole section goes back to what I mentioned as we started this morning, you know, that everything we put out there, there's a reverberation that, that, um, Vibes, Joe, they're vibes. Vibes. Yeah. Good, yeah. There are vibes, and those yeah. vibes continue on beyond us and our existence. They continue and you know, our neighbor, they continue in our children, they continue in our colleagues, um, that in many ways our, our speech and our ways in which we treat others um, 
is shaping them mm -hmm. in some ways. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, um, he's just so profound. I yeah. could, on page 140, he, he kind of just brings it to us. Throughout our day, we produce energies of thought, speech, and action. We're communicating in every moment, either with ourselves or with others. Thinking, speech, and bodily acts are our own manifestations. You are your action. You are what you do. Not only what you do with your body, but also with your words and your mind. Yeah. Karma is the triple action of our thoughts, our speech, and our bodily actions. Like, that just yeah. kind of puts it right there. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it uh, harkens back to a, a fundamental axiom that we teach in the basic communication classes. You cannot not communicate. Right. Right. And so everything that we are it has potential message impact um, on, on other people um, by way of our actions, by way of our speech. It's almost deeper than you cannot not communicate. You cannot not be what you communicate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because if you communicate anger, then you are angry. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Cause yeah. it, just the way he's like, we're communicating in every moment with ourselves or with others. Our very being. And our thinking, speech, and bodily acts are become our manifestations. Sure. Yeah. So we are. You cannot not be your communication. <laughs> well, even he, he even has, in the middle of page 142, a subheading to your point that every communication bears our signature, which I really like that, right? Mm -hmm. that, that we're putting something out there in the world that is uniquely ours, but yet has impact on others. It goes back to how he started the book because he talks about essential food and what yeah. we're feeding ourselves, yeah. right? And yeah. if we're feeding ourselves good and positive things, it becomes more mm -hmm. possible to communicate those things. Mm -hmm. But even if we put out the negative things, that becomes part of our environment. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right before page 142... He talks about those the three kinds of action, thinking being the first kind of action, mm -hmm. um, because it's the basis for how we affect the world. Um, the second form of action, speech, he says, can heal and liberate, or it mm -hmm. can cause destruction and pain. But the third form of action is bodily action. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just going to read that paragraph. He says, we communicate with our body language our clenched fists or open arms, but also with our larger actions, including what we choose to show up for, what we do with our day, and how we treat others. If you're able to do something in the line of saving, supporting, protecting, comforting, rescuing, or caring, there's a positive effect right away. Wow. My inner parent got out the whip and said, did you see that? Choose to show up for. You didn't go to that <laughs> meeting last week. And I'm like, but I already had permission to be gone. Yeah, yeah but you could have gone. <laughs> but you showed up, right? Well, you know, you can't all be perfect. Like, I want to pretend like I'm perfect, but I <laughs> didn't show up for a meeting I could have showed up for. Yeah. 
<laughs> the whole weekend was off though because I didn't even plan to be here. So. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Yeah, but who knows? Even even in that instance, Annalisa, I mean, you had a planned trip out of state. It didn't come to fruition. And my guess is your weekend, even though there may be, have been some dissonance in you as to what am I going to do now, you probably showed up for people along the way, um, you know, whether it was the cashier at Circle K or whatever, you know, yeah. And, yeah. and ways that had impact. So, yeah, showing, showing up doesn't always have to be a part of our, you know, calendar. So That's true. Speak. Yeah. Doesn't have to be a planned showing up. No, no. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Actually, I remember during the pandemic showing up to buy food from Asian restaurants. Mm. You know, that was showing up for the community. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, changing the past. Oh, I kind of liked his idea of changing the past, but I'm not sure that we're there yet. Is that a little bit later on in this? Yeah, story? yeah. Yeah, it is. Do you want to read anything out of uh, Every Communication Bears Our Signature? Well, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I like the fact that we need to think about um, who, who we are has a unique impact on, on those around us. Uh, but he also says, I, I underlined several things within this section, but one line in particular that struck me is where he says, the value of our lives depends on the quality of our thinking, our speech, and our actions. So we're, we're essentially building value um, and who we are and what we put out into the world based upon what's going on in our brain within you know, the speech that emerges from our thinking and ultimately our behavior mm -hmm. and, and how we behave. So all, all of this section to me was just really, really good. Um, and, and then he goes on later in this section, and I, again, I underlined several things, but he says, on page 143, that everything we produce in terms of thought, speech, and action continues even after our body disintegrate. Bodies disintegrate. The cloud is there in the cornfield and in the river. When this body disintegrates, our words, thoughts, and physical actions continue to have an effect. Our thoughts, speech, and actions are our real continuation. Boy, that that is a haunting thought, right? That we leave a legacy um, by way of how we have communicated and how we have treated others and how well we have listened to others. It just is, yeah, it's, but boy, you know, it's a when high you read bar. That, I uh, remember everybody we just talked about when you read that. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and, yeah. Because I'm like, yeah, I remember when Linda did this and yeah. I remember when this happened. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's such a high bar when you think about it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Cynical thought taken out of my head. <laughs> um, yeah, but according to this practice, it's possible to continue beautifully into the future, he says. Imagine yeah. a bank account and somewhere in which we deposit every word, thought, and physical action. The bank account certainly does exist, 
but its nature is non-local. Nothing is lost. Yeah. Yeah. And then he gets into the idea of changing the past. Um, and it, there's, it, it resonated um, with some understanding that I gained when I read the book, um, Brainstorm, The Power and Promise of the Adolescent Mind, which was a couple of years ago. Yeah. But I was all about, well, got to read this book. It talks yeah, I think about you shared to, that with us. Yeah, yeah. yeah the book, yeah. The, the brain changes um, but that's the thing. The brain doesn't know the difference between real and not real. And that sure. is why we have the fearful realization that repetition creates reality. Yeah. Like if you say something over and over and over again, people start to believe it as true because it becomes too hard to keep combating that in your brain. And so eventually your brain just absorbs that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's horrible in terms of politics, but it's fabulous in terms of like childhood trauma. Sure. Because if you take a moment in your past and you revisit it in a mindful state and you reimagine what happened as something that was supposed to happen, the repair can happen in your brain as if it actually happened. Wow. Right? Because wow. that's the plasticity of sure. the brain. It's not going to be an immediate and you got to get in the right state and it probably has to happen more than once and, you know, there's all that other stuff, but it's possible. Right. So when he's talking about changing the past, he's coming at it from a completely different perspective, but what he's saying is also supported by the latest psychology. Sure, yeah. Um, so he says, suppose in the past you said something unkind to your grandmother and now she's no longer alive so you can't apologize directly to her. Many of us carry the guilt of something we've said or done that we think we can't rectify. But it's possible to erase that unskillfulness, unskillfulness of the past. The past isn't exactly gone. If we know our communication continues, then we know the past is still there, disguised in the present moment. That's a mm -hmm. powerful image, too. Mm -hmm. After all, the suffering is still there. You can touch it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and he goes on to talk about the fact that, uh, you know, using the grandmother in the unkind words to her when she was alive, as an example, he extends it to talk about the fact that your grandmother still lives in you, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the impact that she had on you. So you can speak to her in that way, you know, the, the part of her, you know, he talks about recognizing every cell of your body there is presence of your grandmother. Right, and that that's awesome when you mm -hmm. think about the fact that there's still that opportunity to heal um, and to speak to her the um, apology, and she can hear it, and she can hear it, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Yeah, he says that you know as you go through and and tell her that I'm sorry that you had some said something. Um, that was unkind. And when you talk to your grandmother like that, you can see her smiling to you and you can heal the suffering of the past. Yeah. Right. So the there's power. Hope. Yeah. There's hope. There right? is. Yeah. The last paragraph here says communication isn't static. Even if yesterday you produced a thought of anger and hate, today you can produce a thought in the opposite direction a thought of compassion and tolerance. 
As soon as we produce the new thought, it can very quickly catch up with yesterday's thought and neutralize it. Using right communication today can help us heal the past, enjoy the present, and prepare the ground for a good future. Yeah. Yeah, I really like the book. It's a very good book. I, um, and I appreciate you sharing this with me because it has been um, a lot of good food for thought. As I've mentioned from time to time, there were some things that originally I, I thought, well, this seems to be running contrary to um, my own personal spiritual ethic, but the sum total of the book is rock, rock solid. I think, and very compatible with um, a lot of what I would hope to grow into. You know, um, there's a lot of challenging things. Yeah, he's got some major goals. It's funny to hear you say that you hope to grow into being an excellent communicator because I like yeah. think of you that way already. Well, so I'm like, if Joe has to grow, oh my God. <laughs> we're all a work in progress. Aren't we though? Yeah, we yeah. are. We are. And you, dear listener, we want to thank you for joining us. We would appreciate any feedback you have to offer because this is the end of our series. I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk to Joe into reading it again with more people involved or picking another book. But uh, we'll let you know if any of that happens. Yes. Bye. Thank you.